Okay. To do today, we have an article review that's due. I know a couple people have already submitted through the D2L Dropbox. Of course, you can do that. You've got till 6 o'clock tomorrow morning to consider it on time. Otherwise, you can, if you have a copy today, of course, I'll take it today as well. As well. The iTunes quiz is also up and available. And we'll be there through the end of the day Monday or 6 o'clock Tuesday morning. So if you haven't taken it yet, you have a chance to look at it and to examine that. Homework 3, which I gave out last time, is due next Friday. And then coming up after that, we have quiz number 3, which will be on chapters 4 through 8, which we're working on now. And then chapter 9 on the sun. And then finally, exam 2, coming up for the 3rd of October, which will cover for us... Chapter 3 we're done with, chapters 4 through 8 we're working on now, and chapter 9 which we'll start on next week. So it'll cover that. It'll also have a little bit on chapter 2, the little bit that we had not yet covered on the first exam. So be a little bit more. There'll be a couple questions on that as well in addition to the, in addition to the regular material for the exam. So questions on that? No, no, no. Okay. Picture of the day for today. Beautiful image of a tree. You can see there in shadow there, a nice picture of a tree. Oh, we're not looking at the tree specifically. The tree has nothing to do with it except it's kind of framing the image. A um, few stars in the background, but really what we're looking at is the aurora. This was taken in nor the northern part of Norway, so very far north. And that's where you typically see the aurora. Right here, we looked, we saw a couple days ago, we saw an image of the, of the sun. With, some, with one of the coronal mass ejections, the solar flares, particles coming from the sun. And when those particles strike the Earth's atmosphere, they, first of all they get funneled along the magnetic field to the nor very northern part of the atmosphere and they strike it and they cause the atmosphere to glow. So they excite the oxygen and the nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere in order and excite them and cause them to give off their characteristic energy. So if you could take a spectroscope, right, like we did in lab, take a spectroscope, point it at this, you'd actually get a nice emission spectrum that would tell you what it's, what it's made up of. You'd see bright lines for either oxygen or nitrogen, depending on what section of it you're looking at, what atom happens to be excited by those specific high energy particles. So that's what you'd actually see, that kind of a spectrum. Now this was taken in northern Norway. It was taken yesterday. I guess it was 20th. I think it said the 20th. September 20th. So taken just very recently. Can't take a whole lot of aurora pictures in northern Norway during the summer because there's no nighttime or hardly any nighttime. You're that far north that during the summer you'll have 19, 20, 21 hours of daylight and the sunlight, even though it's beautiful and it's bright, the sunlight will overwhelm it and you wouldn't be able to see anything. Now as we're getting to the autumnal equinox, Tomorrow morning at 1049, right? No? It is. 1049 tomorrow, the sun will actually cross the celestial equator, and that will be, that's the autumnal equinox. So it's still summer. May not feel like it out there the last couple days, but it's still summer. Um, it'll actually be fall starting at 1049 tomorrow. And all that means astronomically is now that the sun has crossed, or is crossing the celestial equator. So it's going from being above the celestial equator to below it. And that means that if you took a solar observation today, went through the whole calculation for it, which you don't need to do, but if you went through the whole calculation and got to that last column, which is the declination, 
that declination during the summer is positive. It's above the celestial equator and that's where the sun is right now. So if you made an observation today, went through the whole calculation to get it, you should get a declination that's plus some tiny fraction of a degree. You know, a couple tenths of a degree. If you did the same thing tomorrow or Sunday, you're going to get something that's slightly negative. Again, that's if you make a perfect observation, don't make any mistakes, don't misread anything. But if you could do a perfect observation, you'd actually be able to see that shift. So if you're making something right around now and you do the whole calculation, you should be something, getting something pretty close to zero for, your, for the declination. Again, I don't have you going through all that calculation yet, but just that's where you'd be, where you'd be getting. Now equinox also means equal day, equal day, equal night. So 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of uh, night, right? Sort of. At today, the sun rises at 6.55 and sets at 7.06. Tomorrow it rises at 6.56 and sets at 7.04. Close to being equal, right? But not quite. Oops. Yep. Not quite being, not quite equal. In fact, tomorrow, which is the day of the autumnal equinox, there's actually eight minutes more daylight than nighttime. There's actually an eight minute difference between the two, between the two. We don't actually get them to being equal till around the 25th of September. Close, but not exactly. Now there's two things that actually cause this. If you ever look at the dates on September 21st and wonder why they're not exactly the same, there's two different things. One has to do with how we define what sunset and sunrise are. We count sunrise, the instant of sunrise is when the sun just breaks over the horizon. So it's the very top of the sun that's crossing, the, that's crossing over the horizon. Sunset is when the very top of the sun sets below the horizon. So the sun has just started to rise when it's, we're starting it and the sun has just finished setting when we call the time of sunset. That difference in time, the amount of time it takes the sun to actually go across its own width in the sky takes about two minutes. So if you did it from you know, center of the sun to center of the sun, that would be about two, a minute shorter on either side. You get about a minute, early, a minute later sunrise and a minute earlier sunset. But the other thing that it means the other reason, but that's only two minutes out of eight, so that accounts for a little bit of it, is that the Earth has an atmosphere. Atmosphere acts like a lens and bends the light. So really when you're seeing a sunset and you look out over the horizon, as you're looking through the atmosphere, when you're standing there looking out, the sun may be below your horizon, so the sun may be here, but as that light comes through the atmosphere it gets bent so it actually looks like it's slightly above. So it actually bends the light a little bit. Instead of the light coming straight in, you wouldn't see it here. But at sunset, it's been pulled up a little bit. So you're actually seeing the sun after it's already set. So technically, if you ignore the Earth's atmosphere and any bending effects, just the sun and the positioning of it, the sun would actually set several minutes after, several minutes before you actually watch it set. So when you're watching the sunset, it's already set. It's already, been, it's already gone below the horizon. You just can't tell that yet because the Earth's atmosphere is bending that, is pulling it up. Same thing with the sunrise, except in the opposite direction. It's pulling the sun up over the horizon. So you're seeing the sun rise before it really breaks the horizon. You're seeing into the future a couple minutes. The sun is going to rise. It's going to be there, but it hasn't really gotten over. It's only the Earth's atmosphere that is causing that bending. And that causes about a couple minute difference in the time of sunrise or sunset. So that's sort of why the things don't match up exactly. You know, length of day, 
12 hours, 8 minutes, and 17 seconds. So 8 minutes and 17 seconds has to do with those two effects. Has to do with the fact that this, we, the way we define sunrise and sunset and has to do with the fact that the Earth has an atmosphere. If you did this on the moon, then you wouldn't notice that difference. The, moon, the sun would rise when it rises and it would set when it sets. And the only difference you'd have would be you know, the definition portion. So, Since that's the first day of spring, of, of spring first day of fall coming up tomorrow, well, winter's not over that quick. Uh, first day of fall tomorrow, I thought I'd bring, bring that up and sort of point that out. That if you ever notice, the day that's really close is actually going to be the 25th. Is going to be the one where if you watch sunrise and watch sunset, they're going to be almost exactly 12 hours apart. Questions? No? Okay. Let's go back to the planets then. What is that? Okay, we're getting all sorts of junk popping up. All right. History of the Earth-Moon system. This is what we were looking at last time. And this is sort of our current theory as to how the Moon formed. The Moon is unusual in terms of how big it is compared to the planet it's orbiting. There is not another planet in the solar system that has a Moon that is this big compared to it. Mercury has no moons. Venus has no moons. Mars has two teeny tiny ones. Jupiter, Saturn have some big moons, comparable in size or even bigger than the Earth's moon, but still they're very tiny compared to the planet because Jupiter is so many times bigger than the Earth. So it's, it's a very unusual situation. We don't have large moons around, typically large moons around a small planet. So what we think, one of the, the theory that's been come up with to explain this says that perhaps Four and a half billion years ago, as the Earth was in the process of forming, some object about the size of Mars, maybe, a very large object, smashed into it. Not quite straight on where it just would have collected it and increased the mass of the Earth, but sort of a glancing blow. So that would have done, you know, imagine any other damage. You can see what kind of damage this would do to the Earth, right? You don't, you don't want anything the size of Mars hitting the Earth. Even if a glancing blow, it's gonna, it would destroy absolutely everything. But what it would do here billions of years ago, of course, there was nothing on the Earth yet. It smashes and the material combines in one way. Here's the core of that planet. Sort of gets sucked into the Earth, increasing the metal content. So the iron core of that planet combines with the iron core of the Earth, giving the Earth more iron than you normally than it otherwise should have. What's left over out here tends to be more the outer parts of the planets, more uh, rocky material, which gives the moon less iron and more rock than it would otherwise have. So that explains a couple of observations, a couple of things that we see with the moon. And well, that material would have eventually just condensed. The Earth would have settled back down after this collision. It was pretty much molten at the time, so it just sort of settled back down. And eventually, the Earth would have condensed there and you would have had the moon condensing from some of the material that was around, around it. So sort of a computer model that explains a lot of things that we see about the moon that make it unusual. If you look at the densities of the moon and the earth, there's a very big difference between them. The earth is a lot denser than the moon. They're made of, they seem like they're made of different things and something you wouldn't be able to explain if they just formed together. If they just formed together, why would the moon have no metals in the Earth to get all of them. It's not something that makes sense. If they formed in the same spot, they should have same from the form some type of material. 
and they would have, that would explain it. Now you could explain it by saying the moon formed someplace else and got captured by the Earth, but this is actually a more likely scenario than some object the size of the moon happening to come by the Earth at exactly the right speed, at exactly the right distance, and catch and being caught into a circular orbit around the Earth. It could be done, you know, we can do it, we can launch a satellite and put it into orbit, but it would have to be aimed very precisely. So the odds of that happening are much smaller. This, a glancing blow by a large object, is something that is very likely to have happened early on, at least to some of the planets. Perhaps some of them got hit differently. Venus might have gotten hit differently in terms of, you know, it doesn't have a moon. But likely these kind of collisions were very common early on in the, in the solar system. So, billions of years ago, what did the moon look like? And this is sort of how the moon has changed. The right hand side is what it looks like today. Left hand side is what it might have looked like about four billion years ago. So, what happened is you, the four billion years ago the moon had solidified. So everything we looked at the previous slide occurred well before this. Here now it's all solidified. You have some big craters, some big impacts, very large ones. You don't see any of the maria that we're used to today, where you see these much flatter areas. You don't see any of that a long time ago. The cratering occurred first, and then what happened is the moon heated up inside. Radioactive materials decayed and generated heat inside and melted the interior. So at some point then later on, three a billion years later, then the moon would have had a molten interior and that material, that molten lava would have flowed out and filled the low-lying areas on the moon. So it took a little bit of time for that to happen. A good, th a good thought is that it's again radioactive materials trapped in the core constantly decaying, generating energy. That's energy is trapped by all the layers of the moon on top of it, so it gets trapped in there and slowly heats up the moon. Once it heated up enough, you actually melted, heated up enough to melt the rock and filled the lower lying areas through different cracks in the surface from various craters, actually filled the lowest lying areas on the, on the surface of the moon with the maria that we see today. Now since then, there have been impacts, not near as many as we saw billions of years ago, because in three billion years of impacts, we've not been able to wipe out those maria. They're still there. You can still see them. There's some craters on top of them, yes. But this whole basic effect, the basic point of the maria, they're still there. You can still see where they are. So in three billion years of impacts, you don't get near as many as you had in you know, 500 million years, half a billion years a long time ago. But they're now covered with craters. They will continue to get more cratered if you could come back, you know, three billion years again later. There'd still be more impacts. Things are still hitting the moon just as they're hitting the Earth and any other, any other object. Okay, so that's a little bit on the Earth and the moon. I said I'm not going into a lot of detail on any of the planets. We're just going over got a brief overview of them. The terrestrial planets are, include the Earth, but we're going to look primarily at in this case, we're going to look at Mercury, Venus, and Mars. We kind of do the Earth a little, Earth and Moon is a little bit separate. But Mercury, Venus, and Mars are the terrestrial planets, meaning that they're Earth-like, and they're ones we can actually go and land on. So we could actually go and land on the surface of Mars, right? We've got the rovers there right now exploring. And take samples of the surface, examine it, study the rocks. And as you see there, except for the reddish color, it doesn't look all unlike that unlike the surface of the Earth. 
Okay? There's no plants, there's no animals, there's no signs of civilization. But if you picked a very deserted area on the earth, it wouldn't look all that di- doesn't look all that different than that. If you go out to a deep desert, you're not going to see things that necessarily look all that different than what you see on Mars. The planets are very similar in that, in that way. Now, Mercury and Venus, talked about this maybe when we talked about the orbits of the planets. They're always very close to the sun. We can never see them very far away. And that's because they're interior to us. Here's the Earth. Here's the sun. Mercury orbits around here. No matter where we are relative to the sun, the furthest Mercury can be away is about 28 degrees. The furthest Venus can be away is about 47 degrees. That makes it very difficult to study those two terrestrial planets. So it was a long time before we were able to study, especially Mercury. Something that is only 28 degrees away from the sun, you can see it just as this after, this after sunset for you know, an hour, two hours, maybe. It doesn't take the, takes the sky a little longer than that to actually get dark, to get really dark, so you can't really see anything on Mercury. So details of Mercury were not known until much later. Venus, a little bit better. It gets a little bit further away from the sun. You certainly can see Venus high in the morning sky right now. And a couple months ago, it was nice in the evening sky. You could see it very clearly. But it's still relatively close to the sun. You never get to see it high up in the sky at night as you might see Mars. Mars can actually be, could actually be here, Earth, Sun. Mars could be exactly opposite the, opposite the sun in the sky. And you'd be able to see the entire surface. You can study it at the middle of the night. You get much better images. You can get it much higher in the sky, not looking through all of the Earth's atmosphere that distorts things. So that's one of the reasons we can't really, don't really know a lot about, or didn't really know a lot about the inner two planets until much more recently. In fact, Mercury, it was thought for quite a while, hundreds of years, that Mercury would be tidally locked to the sun the way the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, meaning that you know, one moon orbit around the Earth is exactly the same as the amount of time it rotates. It wasn't until the mid-1960s that we found out that no, it isn't. So relatively recently, just 47 years, 47 years ago, that we were actually able to determine that, you know what, Mercury did rotate. It did rotate with a different period and it actually showed all of its sides to the sun. This earlier thought before in the early 1960s and before that meant that it was quite possible that Mercury, it was thought that Mercury would be the hottest planet in the solar system, being so close to the sun and having one side constantly facing the sun, be the hottest planet in the solar system, it would also be the coldest. That back side of Mercury would never see sunlight. Yeah, it's that close to the sun, but rock doesn't conduct heat all that well. So it never sees sun. It's dark all the time, dark all the time. It would have been the coldest place in the solar system. It turns out that that was not the case, that they're actually in what we call a resonance, a 3 to 2 resonance. We'll see some of these. Uh, if we talk about the asteroids a little later on, we can see, so we'll see some of these as well. But there's actually a pattern to how they do it. They're, they are locked together, but they're not directly locked. With the moon, the moon keeps orbiting so that the same side always faces the Earth. Mercury does it a little bit differently in that it's rotating. So this point on Mercury, this line is some mountain, some feature on Mercury, that it will actually go around once so that one day later it's come around here. Mercury has made one rotation period. And now a different portion of Mercury is illuminated. This part of Mercury was illuminated here. Now that part where that feature is is in darkness. The second time around, 
Day 118, we're back to where we were, year second year. Again, a different portion of Mercury is illuminated. Go around again, finally back around three times. So three years, what it, what it means, what this residence means is that every three days on Mercury are two years. So it is locked up instead of one day to one year, it's three days to two years. And there are many different resonances that can occur. This is one of the other ones that does happen. And Mercury's orbit happens to have locked into this one instead of the one to one, to one ratio. So it does mean that Mercury's not the hottest planet in the solar system. It's not the coldest planet in the solar system. Now it's neither of the two. So it could have been both. Now it's actually neither. Although the reason it's not the hottest planet has nothing to do with the fact that it's not closest to the sun or that it rotates. It has more to do with the fact that Venus has a very thick atmosphere with a lot of carbon dioxide in it that sucks in the heat and makes it a much, much hotter surface even than Mercury's. Okay, so Mercury, no atmosphere. If we look at the atmospheres of these planets, Mercury has none. It's too hot. Particles are moving too fast. Any atmosphere would easily escape. Too close to the sun, very intense solar radiation could wipe out an atmosphere. Too small, doesn't have enough gravity. Not enough gravity to hold on to any particles that are orbiting it. The Earth has a stronger gravity, is able to hold on to its atmosphere. Venus does have a dense atmosphere, much denser than the Earth's. The outer clouds don't look all that different. This is an ultraviolet image of, the, of Venus and doesn't look you know, that different necessarily than some cloud patterns you see on the Earth. So it was thought, again, back in the 50s, 40s, the early 60s, that maybe, you know, v did Venus have life? You know, what, what was it like underneath those clouds? We couldn't see the surface, so we didn't know. You know, could there be life of some kind below there? Could there be tropical forests? It's closer to the sun. It's going to be a little bit warmer. It turns out no. Once we got actual measurements of what the surface temperature uh, is of Venus, is it's pushing... Is it like 900 degrees Fahrenheit? A little bit warm, you know. Turn your oven up high and you're still not quite. You turn your oven up to 450 and then double it. You know, it's that hot on the surface of Venus. One of the reasons we haven't really explored Venus in great detail. You know, the, I mean, the U.S. has never landed a probe on Venus. We've sent probes around it, orbiting, mapping it from, with radar. But there's only been a couple of probes that have actually landed on Venus. The Russian Venera probes. And they didn't last very long. Not only this high temperature, that's one, you know, 900 degrees is bad enough, but the pressure is about 100 times that of the Earth's pressure. So not just one atmosphere pushing around you, but you know, you're well below the ocean imagining 100 atmospheres worth pushing on you. So the pressure is a lot higher. And it's also this atmosphere isn't made up of what our atmosphere is made up. It's a lot of carbon dioxide. Well, that wouldn't affect things too much. Makes it hot, but it wouldn't affect anything else about. It wouldn't have to anything else about it. But it's also got a lot of acids in it, sulfuric acids and carbonic acids, and all sorts of different acids in the atmosphere, which of course will eat away at the metals of a spacecraft. So the first spacecraft that landed there got, I think if I recall correctly, like 15 or 20 minutes they survived. The later ones, which were built with some of this in mind, the later Russian ones that were sent lasted. May, I think the longest one lasted about an hour and a half before it you know, was destroyed. So in terms of what we're going to travel to in the future, you know, maybe Mars. We can certainly go to the moon. We could go to Mars. We could even go to Mercury if you wanted to. 
But Venus is probably, even though it's the most similar to the Earth, it's probably one we're never going to actually land on the surface. You're not going to land people on the surface. The, the, the conditions are just too extreme for anything that we're ready for, ready for now. Now Mars's atmosphere is much more similar to the Earth's or Venus's. It's got a lot of carbon dioxide in it. It doesn't have any kind of oxygens, but it's extremely thin. Venus is about 100 times the density of the Earth's. Mars is about 1 100th. So it's a very, very thin, rarefied atmosphere. Nothing, even if it had oxygen in it, you wouldn't be able to breathe it. It would just be too thin for you to be able to get enough, to get enough oxygen in. But similar, in, other than the oxygen, similar in compositions. Now, Mercury, as I said, you cannot view it from the, from the Earth. You can point a telescope at Mercury, and anytime you're pointing a telescope at Mercury when the sun's down, you're pointing about like that. You're pointing real close to the horizon. You're looking through not just a little bit of atmosphere, you're looking through a big long stretch of atmosphere. And that makes it real hard to get detailed images. That's one of the reasons we didn't know how Mercury rotated until recently. But now we have a spacecraft, in fact our first spacecraft that is orbiting around Mercury is the Messenger spacecraft, which has been there pushing a year now, or a year, yeah, somewhere around there, a few months to a year, has been orbiting around Mercury and actually taking images of it and getting detailed Examination. It's the first spacecraft to be orbiting Mercury. We had sent other space probes that had flown by and taken pictures. This is the first one that's actually orbiting and constantly going around and taking images. And again, seeing what does Mercury look like. Looks a lot like the moon. A lot of craters. In fact, very similar. We don't see the Maria on Mercury like we see on the moon. But overall, the structure looks very similar to the moon. No atmosphere. Uh, cratered, cratered, heavily cratered surface, nothing that's changed in a long time. And you can see, you know, older craters, younger craters, you've got very old, worn down craters that have been there probably for many billions of years. You've got nice, younger, fresh, sharp craters on top of them. You know, that one looks very new. It's like it almost just, you know, um, dug out that material relatively recently. So we're getting a lot of good images from Messenger right now. One of the things that we see on Mercury, which is kind of an unusual feature, are what we call the scarps. Scarp is a cliff, and you can see some of these running across here. So little cliffs running across, run across there, run across there a little bit. And they're hundreds of kilometers long, but they're also a couple kilometers high. So you don't, you don't get that perspective in here. It looks like a little bump on the surface, but when you put that to scale, this is actually, you know, three kilometers, almost two miles high. So quite a big, quite a big cliff if you were actually standing right there. You know, from this perspective, it looks like a little, little bump on it. We think what happened with this is that when Mercury cooled, when Mercury was cooling, it formed from a molten state. It was a little bit bigger. As it cooled and shrank, the outer layers had already condensed and they kind of cracked and formed. So they're little like the ridges and cliffs that formed when the the outer surface, the crust of Mercury, condensed down onto the core that was shrinking. So it was part of the formation of Mercury that it formed. Again, formed as the, as the Mercury got a little bit smaller. You had a big crust that had already solidified, and as it crushed down further, it sort of left these remnants behind as it kind of mashed itself to a little bit smaller, um, to a little bit smaller core as it tried to reach down there. Venus. Now, radar-wise, looks a lot like the Earth. At the top is a radar map of Venus. Bottom is a radar map of the Earth. 
They look pretty much the same. Yeah, the continents don't look anything alike. But overall, you know, if you could imagine that Venus, and it, it isn't, but if you could imagine that you could flood that with water, you'd have continents there up in the north, some continents in the south, um, different areas that would be, you know, higher areas, lower areas. The details aren't the same, but actually the, but the general picture is pretty much, pretty similar overall versus Earth versus Venus. Now one thing Venus does not have is uh, continental plates. It does not have any sign of plate tectonics or moving plates where you have, you know, here the mid-ocean ridge where North America and South America are separating from Europe and Africa and getting further apart, you know, every day. So it doesn't have any kind of motions like that, but the overall structure is pretty much the same as the Earth's. Question, sir? Yeah. It's a good question. It's about the size of the Earth. You would think it would have them. One of the th ideas is that perhaps it's the moon that, you know, the tides on the moon that kept the Earth a little more molten or a little bit more flexible on the surface to make it still move. That maybe if Venus had a moon, it would be able to do that. But there's no sign. I mean, we'd be able to see signs of plate motion in the radar images, and there isn't any. Now, Mars has some signs of it that occurred a long time ago and then probably cooled off too quick. We'll see that in a little bit here. But no sign of plate tectonics. So that's wondering if maybe the one, what's the difference between the two is the moon. You know, we've got a moon, they don't. Maybe the moon does something or has heated it up, has kept enough energy in it, things that kept the plates going. You know, eventually the Earth should cool off and the plate should stop. Eventually that should happen. As the interior cools down more, the crust gets thicker and thicker, then the plates would stop, would stop moving. But again, not, not tomorrow, not next, you, you know, talking millions, billions, billions of years later. Yep. Questions? All right. So, let me see, do I have an image of, yes I do. There is, an, there is the Venera, one of the few, one of the few Venera pictures of uh, Venus. Again, it's going to look like a desert area on the, on the Earth. It doesn't look that different otherwise. You've got rocks and soil and things like that. Not soil in our sense, but you know, rocks, crushed rock um, on it. Doesn't look all that different than what you'd see, you know, again, way out in the desert someplace on the, on the Earth. Now again, the Veneris lander, there were several of them. They lasted between about 15 and 20 minutes for the earliest ones and maybe up to an hour and a half for some of the, long, some of the later ones. And that's just all. High temperature, high pressure, corrosive atmosphere that just destroyed the spacecraft in terms of its ability to be able to communicate back to us. Certainly there may be, still be some remnants of it there, but nothing that can, you know, all of the electronics and anything else would be, would be completely ruined at this point. So could you send something better? I mean, you'd have to get something that's really designed for pressures and temperatures and everything that's much higher than what we're, what we're used to in order to be able to explore it. We're getting a lot more information in terms of Venus by being able to study it with radar, putting a probe around Venus that can constantly map it in radar images as we saw on the previous slide. All right, on to Mars. Said so We're just going to zip through these, give you some of the high points of each one. There's Mars. Um, some of the major features, you've got some volcanoes off to the left-hand side there. You've got the Great Vallis Marineris. And the Vallis Marineris is like a, a rift in the crust, a rift, a rift valley almost. There's a rift valley in eastern Africa. You may have, may have heard of that one. There's a rift valley. That's actually Africa. Part of Africa is separating apart. So 
Come back in 10 million years or 20 million years, Africa will be split into two, that very eastern part. And if you look down there, you see a whole lot of lakes and things there. That's in the process of splitting apart. So Africa will be in two, one major portion and that little eastern portion, especially the northeastern portion, is splitting apart from it. This is the same kind of thing on Mars, the same type of valley. It's completely dead now, but it might have been a sign that long ago, you know, Three billion years ago, four billion years ago, Mars was warm enough inside to have some plate tectonics. Maybe it was starting to try to form that. But it was too cold, too small, cooled off too quick, and was never able to get started. We just have that remnant there. Now, to give you an idea of the size of that though, you know, Vallis Marinera, sometimes it's compared to the Grand Canyon. Well, the Grand Canyon is nothing in size compared to that. In fact, you could fit the Grand Canyon, you know, very comfortably inside one of these little teeny tiny specks down here. That would stretch across the entire U.S. if you put it on the Earth. So that would stretch from, you know, New York to San Francisco. It would stretch all the way across the country. It's about that, it's about that wide, going from one edge of this valley to another. So it's not just a little feature. It's a tremendous, tremendous feature there going all the way across a big chunk of the surface of Mars, but even large compared to the large compared to the Earth. The Tharsis region is the one off on the left. That's the volcanic region. I'm going to show you a better close-up picture of one of the volcanoes later on. It's been a very intense volca um, intensely volcanically active. At least it was billions of years ago. It's completely dead now. So no sign of active volcanoes on Mars in the last few billion years. But a long time ago there was and in fact the it's the size, again, the size of North America, the whole bulge, but the whole area has been raised up about 10 kilometers above the surrounding area just by material pushing up from below and lava flowing from above. It's been built up that much, 10 kilometers, because of the constant volcanic activity that occurred billions of years ago. And by the cratering, last comment there, very little cratering there means it's relatively young. Mars does have a lot of craters. You don't see the details of them here near as much, but there are a few, there are a number of craters scattered around. Some of the areas are heavily cratered. Some are very little. So that's one of the very lowest cratered areas, meaning that it's one of the youngest. It's formed, that surface is formed relatively recently. Now here's Olympus Mons, the largest volcano in the solar system. So much, much bigger than anything we have on the Earth. Have on the Earth. It is about 700 kilometers across, about 400 miles across. So put that in the center of Pennsylvania. It'll easily stretch from edge to edge on the state. So quite a tremendous volcano. The caldera or the opening at the top is, what, 80 kilometers across, about 50 miles. You could fit a nice small state in there. Connecticut would almost fit inside the, just the caldera. So I mean, compared to volcanoes you're used to looking at on the Earth, this is a monster. This would stretch across, you know, a good sized state and fit a nice little one in the, in the opening. 25 kilometers high, it's many, it's several times higher than Mount Everest. So it's one of the tallest objects in the solar system, the largest volcano in the solar system. Now there's three other volcanoes that are similar in size. Why do we get so much bigger volcanoes on Mars? We're a bigger planet. Why don't we get bigger volcanoes, right? You know, we're a bigger planet. And part of the problem is that we are a bigger planet. We have a more intense gravity. So when you start building up a very t high amount of material, the gravitational force on the bottom 
eventually will get high enough that there's a limit to how big of a mountain you can get. Eventually the gravitational and the force on the bottom is going to be intense enough that it'll, the rock will begin to liquefy and the mountain will you know, settle. Not just crash or anything, but it would, it, would, it would be a limit to how much you could get. Eventually the pressure on the rock would be so much that you'd push it down and you could only get so, you could get something so tall. A lower gravity of Mars, you can actually get a much taller volcano. The other thing is that Mars didn't have plate tectonics. Right? We, have, we have the Hawaiian volcanoes that form. The Hawaiian Islands are a volcanic chain, so there's volcanoes have formed each of those. Not all of them are active anymore. They're only active off the big island of Hawaii. The other chain going off to the west is inactive volcanoes. And that's because the plates are moving on the Earth. So where that volcano occurs moves over time. It slowly moves. So it come, go back you know, 10 million years before or 20 million years and Hawaii didn't exist. The main island, now the big island, and the other ones had active volcanoes. Over time that's changed. As, the play, as that hot spot moves to a different location and in fact now there's a new underwater volcano that's working you know, off the coast of Hawaii. Come back in you know, 10 million years, 20 million years and there'll be a new Hawaiian island. So you know. Get your claim on it now, right? You know, claim, claim that the new, of course, you know, claim the claim the new Hawaiian island, and of course the other ones wear down too. So, you know, you lose off on the other side, constantly being hit by ocean waves. They're going to get worn down. So there are other Hawaiian islands that are gone, that probably used to exist, that have just been wiped out by constant, you know, waves hitting them for, you know, not just weeks and months and years, but millions of years, constantly wearing them down. And you notice that if you look at the Hawaiian islands, where's the, the big one? Is Hawaii, right? and they get smaller and smaller as you trail them out to, the, out to the west. So Mars didn't have that, so when this volcano erupted, when it was erupting billions of years ago, it put the lava here. And if it was erupting for you know, a million years later, it was still erupting lava in the same spot, and 10 million later, years later, and 100 million years later. As long as it was erupting, that lava came up through the exact same spot in the crust and built up a much larger volcano than what we get here on Earth. Craters, we do see some signs of crater. We do see lots of cratering on Mars. That tells us about the ages. You don't see a lot of too many small craters. A lot of the small ones have disappeared. Interesting one thing I like in this one, first of all, you see some evidence of some kind of flows over there on the left-hand side, but I, I like the one on the right. Gives you an idea that there was liquids on Mars at some point. And if you look at that, that looks like someone threw a rock in the mud. The splash, you don't get, like we looked at the craters on the moon, they were nice and sharp and well-defined. You had rays going straight out. This looks like you threw a rock in the mud almost and got the splash of mud around it. So probably the surface was maybe not completely, obviously not completely a liquid. If it was in a water, if it was an ocean, it probably wouldn't have ever happened. You would have, it would have disappeared. But it may have been a very muddy, wet surface when that crater occurred splashing out the material, which then solidified later on. The crater analysis, my, mid, my middle comment there, says that we can, you can estimate the age of the surface. It doesn't tell us how old the planet is. The planets are all about four and a half billion years old, but their surfaces can be different ages. That means that they haven't changed in a long time. The surface of the moon is pretty much unchanged from as it was three and a half billion years ago, whereas the surface of the Earth 
has been constantly reworked. You've had volcanoes wiping out parts of the surface. You've had weathering effects. So how many craters we see is a good measure of how old the surface is, how long it's been since that surface has changed. And we see that elsewhere in the solar system. Where there's more craters, that surface has been around for a much longer time. When there's fewer or no craters, it's a relatively young surface. As I said, we're zipping through them. Jovian planets. That's why I said you don't, don't expect to read all that. You're welcome to, but don't expect to read all these chapters. Jupiter, the largest of the Jovian planets. We can see it nicely from Earth. You don't need even a big telescope. A nice small telescope will show you Jupiter. Um, Galilean moons here. You have several of the Galilean moons. So that's more like the image that Galileo would have been able to see early on. Again, you see some maybe some tiny structure to Jupiter. You can't see. It doesn't look near as beautiful as the nice images taken with the big telescopes over a long period of time. But you can see some evidence of some kind of structure on its, on its, in its atmosphere. And you can easily see the moons that Galileo saw and watched orbiting around it. A more true color image of Jupiter. There's a nice, be- much better one from, it's probably from one of the Voyager probes. Um, picture of Jupiter. You still see that same banding structure that you had. It's got a much more complex atmosphere in these types of planets than we do on either the Earth or Venus, which are the other two planets with a significant atmosphere. You also see the great red spot as well as some smaller spots which are great storms. The great red spot has been there for a couple hundred years now that we know of. In fact, we don't know how long it's been there. It's been there since we've been able to see it with the telescope. So as long as we've been able to have a telescope that was powerful enough, Galileo's weren't quite powerful enough to pick up the red spot, but a hundred years later we were able to have bigger telescopes and we could see the red spot and it's been there ever since. Now we don't know if they only last 500 years and they just formed and is going to disappear or if they last 500,000 years and we're just somewhere in the middle of it. We only have one to look at and we know that it's been there for three, four hundred years and that's about it. But it's a great storm, so sort of like a great hurricane in the atmosphere, similar to what you get on the Earth, except that you know, on the Earth hurricanes last for what, a couple of weeks? You know, they form and they come through and then they, they um, decay. This one in the atmosphere of Jupiter has lasted for hundreds of years. Now. I'm going to go through each of these and then I'm going to come back in a little bit more on each one. Saturn, not quite, as, it's not quite as pretty in terms of the atmosphere as Jupiter. Jupiter has a lot more structure to it in its atmosphere. Saturn, as the planet itself, looks a lot plainer, but it's got those beautiful rings. So rings of Saturn are there, um, very thin, almost paper thin in scale size to the size of Saturn itself and are really just a whole bunch, many billions of particles, little tiny particles, you know, this size, little tiny size, this size, you know, maybe up to things, you know, size of a person. They're all real relatively small particles, nothing real large there, that are orbiting around in their own individual orbits, but there's a whole bunch of them there. And again, we'll come back and look at that in more detail. And then we have this in the surface is very bland by comparison to Jupiter's. We saw Jupiter's and Jupiter has a lot more structure there in its atmosphere. When you look at Saturn, similar structure, but not near as, not near as pretty as Jupiter's. 
Why? Because Saturn is a lot further away from the sun and it's colder. So it's got a lot more haziness and a lot more atmosphere up above those pretty cloud layers that kind of fogs them all out and you don't really see all the detail on Saturn that we see on Jupiter. Uranus. It's getting blander and blander, isn't it? Not much there. It looks like a big bluish green ball. Well, blue probably, it's more blue up there. It's blue, more of a bluish green. There are a few structures. You can see some clouds in it. And let's see, are they visible up on here? Not very well. There's a couple little cloud features. If you look at the image in the textbook, there are a couple little cloud features that you can see. But pretty much not, not, pretty much, very, not much of anything. Not much of anything at all. It's there. I mean, there's an atmosphere there. There's more stuff below it. But not that you see a lot of detail. Neptune is similar. Although Neptune, interestingly enough, when you get even further out from the sun, you start to get more. Neptune has a great storm visible on it, or had a great storm. This one actually did disappear. So that was there for a while. So the storm on Neptune doesn't last nearly as long as the one on Jupiter has. Or we just caught it at the very end of a long life. That you don't, you have no way to tell when it formed and when it, when it went away. But Color-wise, it's very similar to Neptune. They're both very bluish, bluish-green colors. And that's because they're primarily, they have a lot of methane in their atmosphere. Methane loves red light. So methane absorbs all the red light that comes from the sun. So sunlight comes, strikes the planet. The methane in the atmosphere collects all the red light, absorbs it. What's going to be reflected back? What's left over? The blue light comes back to us. So it actually is telling us a little bit about the composition of the atmosphere, that coloring. All the red light that was there, methane is just real good at sucking all that up and takes it all out of the spectrum. Okay, look a little bit more detail at each of these. Here's Jupiter's atmosphere. Again, it has zones and belts. The atmosphere isn't a flat surface. It's not something you could ever land on. There are higher areas and lower areas. You have some of the bright zones are actually higher up than the belts by a little bit. So that you'd have warmer material coming up. You'd see that energy being released. And then the cooler area sink, material sinking back down. And there's flows, deep flows underneath that are hopefully probably causing this. Jupiter does not have a solid surface. There's no place you could go land down there. So you can't send a space probe into there and actually land on the surface of Jupiter and look back up. Um, there are, yes, there are rocks and metals down at the core. But Jupiter is so massive that by the time you get down to the core, the atmosphere and the hydrogen is condensed denser than rock, denser than metal. So there's no, there's no surface to land on. There's no, it's just a gradual transition where things get denser and denser and denser. And it's like going down in the ocean into a deep trench and it gets thicker and thicker water and higher and higher pressure. Eventually, if you could do that deep enough, it would become almost a solid. And the atmosphere does the same thing. It gets compressed so much that the density is just so intense that there's no difference. When you get to, by the time you get down to rocks, there's no difference in the density between that rock and the atmosphere, the very thick atmosphere above it. But this is just a simple model of it, just showing kind of how the atmosphere works and how we get these bright and alternating bright and dark areas, it's almost like a kind of convection where you have warm material rising and cooler material settling back down. Again, the big feature, there's the great red spot spinning counterclockwise. 
So like a, gr a great, uh, great storm gives you an idea of the size of it because there's the Earth to scale now. So to give you an idea, you can fit almost two Earths across that great red spot. It's a monster of a storm. So it's not just a little tiny storm, it's a great big, great big storm. And it's been there again for hundreds of years now. You see some of the interest, you can see all the flowing around it. You can see all the turbulence. You know, how all the atmosphere is just twisted and turned around that great red, around that storm. And all the, what, all of what's going on in the, in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Saturn. We'll finish up here in a minute. Saturn is very similar to that of Jupiter. Saturn's a little bit colder, meaning that it's got a thicker atmosphere up above it. It's got a lot more haze and material above those clouds. Those clouds that occur on Jupiter occur on Saturn, but they need a certain temperature, and that's deeper down inside Saturn's atmosphere. So there's more material above them, which makes them almost, but not quite, invisible. By the time we get out to Uranus, they're almost invisible. You do see Saturn has a bunch of moons too. The last chapter, chapter eight, we'll talk about some of the we'll talk about some of the different moons and the rings in much more detail. But again, the feature that you notice that jumps out at you anytime you look at Saturn is the rings. It's the only planet with a beautiful ring system like this that stands out. All of the Jovian planets have a ring system of some kind. Jupiter has a faint ring, Uranus has a few dark rings, Neptune has some rings and partial rings. But only Saturn, for whatever reason, has all this beautiful, has this beautiful ring system. Let me see what else. Um, on to Uranus. Let me go ahead and stop. I'll finish Uranus, Neptune, and talk about the other objects probably on Monday and finish those. We'll finish up this unit and then go on to the Sun on Wednesday and Friday. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there instead of trying to do, yeah, I've got a couple to do there. That's good. So, questions? Otherwise, we'll take a break and I'll start lab and well, probably about probably about 10. I got to get the computer set up so we can actually do try to do labs today, see how it works. So. All righty. Let me get this